Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Essentials, written by the world's leading sustainable builders, designers, and engineers, New Society Publishers' Sustainable Building Essentials series covers the full range of natural and green building techniques with a focus on sustainable materials and methods and code compliance. From rainwater harvesting to composting toilets to straw bale, rammed earth, hempcrete, and more, these unique books present the essential information on each topic. Find out more about the Sustainable Building Essentials series at NewSociety.com. Are you the owner or promotions manager for a regenerative business or organization looking to get your message out to a larger audience? Finding your target audience for regenerative products and services can be tough, especially while the movement is still in its infancy and awareness around the importance of ethical business still has a long way to go. If you want to tap into a network of informed and motivated people with strong environmental and community ethics who vote with their purchases, then you've come to the right place. The Abundant Edge podcast now has more than 30,000 monthly listeners around the world and is growing fast. These are listeners who are actively involved in the regeneration of our planet and are enthusiastically supporting businesses and projects that reflect their priorities. We now offer competitive sponsorship packages for single episodes and discounted rates for multiple episodes, social media campaigns, promotional videos, and more. The best part is that all your investment goes straight into making this podcast the best resource for regenerative skills education that it can be. Because of our commitment to the integrity of our message and our affiliations, this offer is only open to businesses and organizations that are as committed to regenerative work as we are. If this sounds like a good fit for you, Go to the show notes for this episode to fill out the collaborator application form. We look forward to helping you reach your highest potential. In this continuation on the series of regenerative building and design, I checked in with a good friend of mine and a hero in the rocket stove and masonry heater sphere. Kirk Mobert, more commonly known as Donkey, is the founder of the Sundog School of Natural Building in Northern California and has literally been on and in the ground through the development and maturation of rocket stoves and all the innovations and advances over the last 20-odd years. This session might be a little heady for people who are new to rocket and masonry stoves, but for anyone looking to start from the beginning, you can check out the link to the first interview that I recorded with Donkey back in the first season by typing either Donkey or rocket stoves into the search bar on our website, or just clicking on the link in the show notes for this episode. In this episode, we nerd out on the inner workings of the simple engineering behind some of the most efficient cooking and heating machines ever made. Donkey and I talk in detail about the potential applications for cook stoves, home heating, and even ovens and water heaters that can be made from the same base that superheats wood or other biofuels into complete and clean combustion. We talk about some of the innovations that have come from tinkerers in the online forums around these topics, as well as how you can get started making mad scientist-type pyro experiments in your backyard with natural and recycled materials. We also go into detail about why the full journey of our energy and fuel sources needs to be taken into account when calculating the efficiency and thermal output of an appliance. Since we describe a lot of aspects of stoves that can be hard to visualize just through audio, 
I've included a lot of links to the images on the online forums that you can find in the show notes for this episode to make it easier to follow along. This was a really fun conversation, but I'll warn you listeners that the nerd factor, much like when I get talking about earth and plasters and design theory, is really high on this one. So get your pocket protectors and thick glasses out, and I'll turn things over now to Donkey. Hey, Kirk. Uh, Donkey, my man. How are you doing, buddy? I'm great, Oliver. Long time no talk. I know, far too long. It's, uh, it's really cool to catch up with you. I'm glad to hear things are going so well at your place up in Northern California and that you've got so much work doing small cob cottages and ovens and rocket stoves and all that fun stuff that you're known for. <laughs> Thank you. Well, so I really am hoping to get kind of a more updated version of the conversation that we had previously kind of going into depth about rocket stoves, where that technology is at, but we're also going to explore a little bit more about the options that people have for these types of installations in their home and Mm -hmm. also how to compare them to different types of stoves and fuel sources and all that. So what do you say we just jump right in? All righty then. Excellent. So like I mentioned, we recorded an episode earlier before. So if anybody wants to get to know about your background and how you got into natural building, I'm going to leave a link to that episode in the show notes for this podcast so they can go and check that out and we'll, we'll jump ahead. So let's start by talking about some of the innovations in rocket stove technology and what have been some of the changes that you've seen in the last couple of years. Oh boy, well... You know, uh, the batch rocket, the, the, the batch box rocket stove um, is really coming into its own now. Um, it's, so talk a little bit about that from the basics. For anybody who hasn't heard that term or know exactly what you're referring to, can you kind of describe it for us? Sure, sure. You know how most um, – the, the, the rocket stoves that we're usually familiar with, that you see a lot of – I mean, well, there's really now three major branches of rocket stove, and it's all about the feed. Um, there's the horizontal feed. That's the oldest one that you see on cook stoves where you feed horizontally into the stove and um, the feed is the same diameter all the way through the feed and the heat riser and all of that. Um, that's the old Winiarski um, rocket stove. And then you have the J tube rocket stove, which is moving into the rocket mass heaters realm um, where you put the wood down in it. And then it burns horizontally, you know, and then before it goes to the heat riser. And again, that rocket stove, it's the same diameter all the way through, you know. The, the, the feed is the same diameter as the little horizontal burn tunnel part is the same diameter as the heat riser, is the same diameter as the chimney pipe. Mm-hmm. And then you have a bat, the batch rocket which is completely different in a way. It's sort of a return to the horizontal feed, but with a much larger um, firebox. It's, it's like a real firebox where you can put in uh, much more wood at, at a time. So a batch rocket is about four times the, um, the diameter of the chimney the, um, and the heat riser. Uh, So what are some of the advantages of those different configurations? What have you found either makes it easier to run or like, yeah, how does that shake out? Well, let's see. Um, The old horizontal ones were really meant for cooking and they were designed to be operated in places where there wasn't a lot of firewood available. And so you needed to be very, very, very conservative with the wood. 
So you have to physically push the wood into the fire consistently. You have to be there and alert and awake and constantly feeding in the wood. And if you don't do that, then it'll go kind of go out on its own, um, which means that you save on your stick, right? Sure. It's efficient for fuel in that way. Yeah, well, it's efficient for fuel, but it's also, I mean, you know, all these stoves are really efficient for fuel. Um, and I think that the J-tube is actually a more consistent, official, efficient burn than the L-tube. We'll call the L-tube the horizontal feed. Um, it's just that the L-tube horizontal feed, if you don't shove the wood in on purpose, it will not burn it. It'll yeah. sort of just kind of go out. Where with the J-tube, if you walk away from it, if you leave it alone, um, the wood will feed itself down um, until it's gone. For the most part, assuming it doesn't get blocked or kind of jammed in there. Right, exactly. Assuming it doesn't block or jam up. Yeah. Um, which happens, you know, nature does its thing. Definitely in my experience. And I've always preferred the J-tube. That's kind of what I've taught in my own courses because like a, a minimal amount of maintenance means you can be paying more attention to either what you're cooking up on top or, you know, just not have to watch it so much. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the J-tube has to be taller. Uh, like it has to have a taller heat riser, mm. um, which means that you, that it's, it's better geared for people who stand at the fire, who stand yeah. to cook. Um, well, it's, that's not culturally, culturally appropriate in a lot of places in the world where the people squat or sit to cook. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the challenges I ran into is in the small indigenous village in Guatemala that I was living in, a lot of the women who primarily did the cooking in the house were under five feet tall, not uncommonly. And to have that higher heat riser made it somewhat uncomfortable for them to use a stove at that height. And yeah. I was constantly trying to put the, uh, the J portion, the, the burn chamber down deeper into the, the earth, which, you know, has some advantages, but goodness, if, if any moisture rises up, it could flood at the bottom. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But you know, I mean, it, the proportions can be messed with a little bit. I know that there's an ideal proportion, but there's a little bit of wiggle room there's some there. Play in that. Yeah, I often ended up shortening it a little bit for convenience. Right. Yeah. So I mean, so so one of the other things about the L tube is is that that feature is that you can sit or squat at the fire, uh, and it's culturally appropriate for for people who do that. Yeah. Um, whereas the J tube is very difficult, as you pointed out, it's difficult for some short people to deal with. Um, you know, let alone sit or squat at the fire to deal with. You know, to 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 work with it. Mm -hmm. So that's that. That's more of a cultural thing, I think, um, and a way of saving on wood. I mean, you know, granted, you could pull the firewood out of a J tube to save it if you want to. Yeah. But but again, you, you know, you have to be conscious. Yeah. So it like, takes a little more maintenance. It's, it's a bit more of an involved process. Exactly. Well, I don't know. Both of them are, you have to be conscious with both of them. You have to be conscious pushing the wood into the one and you have to be conscious taking the wood out of the other one. And I guess it's all relative too. It depends on what you're comparing it to. So if it's like an open fire that you're used to tending a lot, it's not that big of a difference. But if you're used to just pressing a knob and throttling a gas flame or even just, you know, like a, a resistor, an electrical resistor, all right, then it's a different comparison. Yeah, true enough, true enough. Okay, so moving along, we got the, 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 the J-tube now, which we've kind of talked about. J-tubes are nice in that you can stand at them and feed down, 
you know, because, because I come from a culture that stands to cook. Yeah. Um, if I, 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 you know, I've built um, stand-up stoves that use the, the L-tube feed, and it's quite a pain, actually, because you're, you have to constantly get down on your hands and knees to look horizontally to stuff wood into the box. Sure. So you're up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, you know, and it's, it's not that great. So standing at a J-tube um, rocket mass heater, I mean, sorry, rocket cooker is much easier because you can basically just reach down and twiddle the wood. It's not a horizontal... You know, it's not a horizontal twiddle box. It's a vertical one. Sure. Um, the vertical feed also tends to hold the wood in a better position for combustion all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's falling down. Ideally, it's falling down to the bottom of the firebox where the combustion's happening. And, and ideally, it tends to sort of do that. Sure. I mean, of course, it doesn't always. You know, a little bit of um, fluff or branches sticking out um, or just the friction inside the box. They'll, they'll hang up if you're not paying attention and then the bottom of the sticks will burn off and then the top of the stick now on fire will roll out of the firebox. Yeah, potentially. Or yeah. Um, depending on the draw too, in my experience, the fire might start coming up some of the longer sticks and reverse the flow or start burning outside of the chamber it was supposed yep. to. Yep. And then I guess the other one that I every once in a while would struggle with is depending on how those sticks would fall as the bottoms burned out, it could choke off the fire by blocking the air intake. Yep. Uh, there's a little thing called a Peter channel, a P channel. Uh, it's a metal plate that you can build that goes against the the front brick or the back brick, I guess, the brick away yep. from you. Agreed. Yeah, those yeah. can be super useful. And there's like that variation on the L configuration too that keeps the airflow underneath going as well. Yep, that's right. Yep, those are super useful. I would recommend if anybody's building those configurations to, to make the little extra effort and put that metal thing in there. Yeah, well, that, I mean, the metal thing avoids, um, it's, it's great for three things, really. I, I, choke. Yeah, did we talk about this in the last go? I don't think we covered the P-channel. Okay, yeah, I don't really remember that we did. Um, it's worth uh, mentioning, though. Yeah, well, it's just a little metal plate, and it's, um, it's about 5% of the, of the cross-sectional area of the whole system. Um, and what it does is it create, well, actually, no, let me rephrase that. It creates an air channel that's 5% of the cross-sectional area of the rest of the system. Yeah. Um, and uh, fresh air that then can be sort of injected in front downstream from where the wood is. Yep. Uh, and it keeps that first brick really uh, much cooler, so it's less likely to crack. Um, and it sort of prevents the, um, what you were talking about, wood from falling into that space and just completely choking the fire. Um, and it also creates a consistent, steady stream of cool air uh, and a, just downstream where you want it, really. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So it's, it's really good for organizing the fire. And it goes hand in hand with another thing called a tripwire. Now, this one I have been reading about. I've seen all the pictures and the instructions on the forums that you host, but I haven't had a chance to try it out myself. Can you explain it a little? Yeah. Uh, you may have experienced this with regular J-tube, you know, where you put the wood in and it'll do something that I call seeking, where the flame will 
run down the firebox really far. And you'll even see it sometimes pop out of the heat riser for a second. And then it'll run back again. And then it'll run out and run back. It'll sort of pulse. Right? You may have seen that pulsing. Mm. And every time the fire does that pulsing maneuver, when it returns, it'll puff a little puff of smoke. So if you were to check its efficiency curve while it's pulsing, you'll see high efficiency and then suddenly this low efficiency moment. And then back to high efficiency again and back to low efficiency, et cetera. Yeah. Often it's a sign that there's an airflow problem. But um, even when the air is going fine every, and everything's arranged just right, you can still see that flame sort of pulse in and out. Um, and quite often you'll see that flame running up the heat riser uh, and it'll be di a little more disorganized. So what uh, um, a tripwire does is it's, it can be made a lot of different ways, but it, typically it's a brick with sort of an arrow shape cut into it. And the arrow shape has what we call a bluff body on it. Um, and this brick is placed at the very top of the horizontal burn chamber. So it's down. And this is closer towards the fuel source or closer towards the heat riser? It's kind of in the middle. I would say, you know, uh, most of my um, horizontal, most of my uh, burn tunnels are about four bricks deep. Okay. Okay, so I guess it's actually closer to the fuel source because it's the second brick typically. Gotcha, gotcha. And so visually looking at it, it's, it's like a slanted arrow pointing downstream of where yeah. the fire is going, right? Right, that's right. And it's a slanted arrow, so it makes a little bluff. It, it's like a little projection from the ceiling. Yep. Um, and that little projection creates turbulence. And so what that turbulence does is it mixes the fuel air better because, you know, the, the unburned fuel, the hot unburned fuel, tends to rise to the top of that, of that tunnel. Uh, and so this um, little heat, uh, this little uh, tripwire will spin that stuff up really well. So you'll get a really good fuel-air mixture there. But what it also does is it creates sort of a flame holder. Um, are you familiar with the term flame holder? No, no. Catch me up to speed. Well, a lot of stoves, like propane stoves, any stove that burns a gas, right, um, they'll have something called a flame holder in it. And quite often it's just the, the aperture. It's just the holes in your, in your stovetop. Um, they create a turbulence, and that turbulence is consistent. It stays in one spot so that when the gas comes up and mixes with air, the flame is always in one spot. Okay, um, so other, otherwise, the flame will seek around. It'll, yeah, it'll, it'll be irregular. It'll seek around, and it can put itself out like in a propane stove. Sure. Um, so this creates a flame holder inside the rocket stove itself in the burn tunnel so that then the flame stops seeking. It's always in a consistent spot. Um, and it has more time to burn itself completely and run the fire out. And quite often, you won't even see flames in the heat riser at all. Mm. The fuel will be completely burned um, before it even gets to the riser. Gotcha. And so is this... Are, are any of these techniques something that can be integrated in with the batch box? Because all the configurations that I've seen are even simpler than what we've described here. Do you want yeah. to break it down from the beginning for the batch box? Batch boxes have all of those features in them. They just look a little different. Okay. 
So what a batch box is, 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 is a, as I said before, it's a much larger feed box. So you could stick in a whole batch of wood. It's like a, like a regular wood stove kind of. You put a front door on it. You open the door. You start your fire. You put the wood in. You close the door. And it burns about four times as much uh, at one given moment as, um, as a JT will. Um, you can burn, um, what's it called? You can burn cordwood in it. You can put regular cordwood firewood instead of having to chop up your firewood. Well, depending on where you live, of course, right? Right. And but, that's actually um, why I first started to experiment with them is because when I was building these stoves for the Guatemalan women in my town, their biggest complaint was that they had to cut all this kindling to put into the J configuration and they didn't want the extra chore. So they wanted to be able to, to put in cord wood or larger diameter wood and not have to break it down. Right. Well, a huge advantage. if you're cutting down huge trees or, you know, trees in order to make firewood, that's an advantage. Sure. This is assuming you have a better fuel source than what these were originally designed to, to solve. Right. I mean, if you're going out and you're basically harvesting stick wood, it's not necessarily an advantage. Sure. Well, anyway, um, most of the folks that I know, you know, I live in these in the States and here it's all about cut down big trees and cordwood is ubiquitous. At least in the out here in the country, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. It's being banned in most cities now, I believe. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Like San Francisco, there's, you know, there's, they're starting to ban straight up ban wood fires. I mean, it makes sense for the emissions within a city, but anyway, only only if you don't have efficient stoves. Sure, sure, but most but people have no idea that. that this technology is this simple and exists. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, let's. It, it, yeah, and that just runs into this whole political thing that I don't even want to get into. <laughs> we'll do a whole other episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, um, so a batch rocket means you can put cordwood in it and you can put more in at one time. Um, but in order to do that and have it run efficiently, it will, there's still a heat riser in the back. You have to inject air towards the back of the firebox. Yeah. Uh, and that there is actually a P-channel. Gotcha. It's a slightly different configuration. It comes from a different place. Right. Usually there's a pipe that goes in that injects the air and then it has to be shaped a certain way so that, so that gas is flowing over it will draw air in, but it's essentially the same device. Right. Um, okay, so then you have your batch rocket, your batch box feed part where the wood goes. Now that's four times system size. Uh, have we defined system size yet? Uh, I don't think so. Let's back okay. that one up a bit. So yeah, take it back a little bit. System and actually, size. how about this? Before we get too much into the details of how these things are configured, quickly tell us where I can uh, send people to see images of this because I know it's going to help with understanding what you're talking about when nerds like me haven't spent so much time on your forums and have this all in their head. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there's, uh, there's, if you want Batch Rocket knowledge, you really want to go to batchrocket.eu. EU, is that right? Yeah, I think it's batchrocket.eu. Well, either way, I'll make sure I'll get all the links of this. I'll put them on the show notes for this podcast along with your previous episode if people want to go look back. And if any of you are struggling to follow along with this and need some visual cues, just check out the links on the website and follow along from there. 
Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. 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 Uh, having said that, it is. It's batchrocket, B-A-T-C-H-R-O-C-K-E-T dot E-U. My man. <laughs> um, All right. And that is um, 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 Peter Vandenberg's site. And he lays it all out, man. He just gives away the keys to the kingdom. It, it's a yeah. really good site. It's His all there. His engineering is on point. Oh yeah, he's a he's he's a genius. I love that guy. He's also a <laughs> lot of fun to hang out with. I tell you what. Nice. Um, and then uh, you could also go to my forums uh, at uh, donkey32.proboards.com. Uh, the whole thing is there, and also the journey is there. You know because. Um, Peter did all of his testing and reported every single iteration that he did on the forums. Yeah. No, you can go way down the rabbit hole if you love this stuff as much as we do. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally, totally. I mean, you can learn not only how to build them, but how all the iterations that didn't work, plus why he was thinking what he was thinking when he did those iterations. So, <laughs> yeah, if you're super nerdy into this stuff, that might be fun. But, <laughs> but you don't have to know all that stuff. That's the point. Yeah, right. If you're not, then it's going to be tedious. But Right. So let's stick with the, the basic explanation for now. Okay. So, so then you got your feed box, uh, and then you have this air injector in the back. And right behind the air injector, the whole thing – oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I did not talk about uh, system size. Yep, system size. So system size is based on – well, back in the day, it was based on what stovepipe you could find. Um, we would go to the dump and we'd pull out a bunch of junk stovepipe and then you look at the stovepipe and go, Oh, what have I got here? I got a bunch of six inch stovepipe. And now rocket stoves traditionally need to be built so that the feed and the heat riser and all that stuff and all the tubing through a bench or whatever you're doing has to be the same. It can never be smaller than system size. This is all classical stuff. And, and so we would match it to the stovepipe we had. Right, so if I got a bunch of six-inch stovepipe, well, I'm going to make a six-inch rocket stove. Sure. Okay. So I mean, that kind of covers that quickly. Sure. Um, uh, so what a batch rocket does, interestingly enough, is that okay, so you have your four times system size as your feed box, and then it narrows to 0.72 percent of system size at a place that we call the throat, which is the very back of the feed. Um, sometimes the, off to the side. Sometimes off to the side. True. Yeah. There's the Sidewinder batch rocket, which has a, um, a side throat. And then Peter Vandenberg's been playing around with his, um, his double shoebox idea, uh, which I say is not a rocket stove, incidentally. Um, but uh, it's still an amazing thing. And he has a throat. It's actually ver it's vertical. It's above, in the, above the firebox. Okay. Um, I, um, I'm saying that it's not uh, a true rocket stove and Peter agrees with me, but it's a really cool thing. It's called a double shoe box. It's on the forums. Go check it out. Nice. I'll have to check it out. I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. It's pretty nifty. Um, I think what they've done though, is they made a double shoe box that is a true rocket stove and I haven't actually gotten into it deep enough to see, but I can t there is a heat riser on it some kind of way. Anyway, Let's get off of that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in the back of the batch rocket, there's a throat. Uh, and that throat does exactly the same thing that um, the tripwire does. Because it's a tall, narrow slot, um, 
gases and air have to kind of squeeze through it. Yeah, it's, it's compressing it and causing that turbulence like the tripwire you're talking about? Exactly, that's right. It's, a, it's like a Venturi tube, basically. It creates a Venturi effect. Nice. Um, and with, yeah, low so then, pressure. Yeah, the air comes swirling out on both sides into the riser, right? Right, that's right. Yeah, it comes shooting out into the riser and you get something called a double ram's horn. Yeah, I saw that when I built this one at my own house. I didn't end up keeping the thing almost because it, it ended up firing too hot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just yeah. ended up scalding everything that I put on that. And I, I think if I go back in my, my videos, I've got a clip of us trying to use it as a barbecue and nearly like melting our cast iron pan. <laughs> it's too much. It's, it's too entirely much. too much. Yeah, it's too much. Um, but you could build a tiny little four inch batch rocket, you know, a four inch system size batch rocket, mm. which is also a little too much for just cooking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but a little tiny four inch batch rocket with a tiny little firebox can heat a remarkably large space. Sure. That's um, the thing. I, so like after we talk about these uh, configurations of the burn chambers, then we can go into all of the different iterations of how to use the heat and how to reclaim it and how to reroute it in different ways. Yeah. So let's, let's wrap up on the, the batch box at the bottom and then we can talk about that whole world. I kind of think we just did that. Okay. Um, uh, the, the one thing to note, I guess, is that batch rocket heat risers tend to be a little taller than usual. Uh, do you have off the top of your head the the ratios on that oh boy uh yeah i'm gonna get that wrong um i'm, I'm that's probably what, that's gonna what get the that forums wrong. are for we don't have to go too nerdy on the episode yeah totally and i've seen you do some really cool stuff with this in finding household items to build this out of because you know some people will go way far into this and you know get all of the proper insulative material the fire brick welded doors and you know that can be difficult for people to acquire or find yeah. someone with the skill set to put together i've seen you do stuff like using uh pot and pan lids that are glass as the as the door for one of these chambers what are some of the other materials that you've been able to to play around with uh well you know because everybody else is, is going high tech i just figure that i don't need to go that way yeah um so um i've been building um uh, uh, homemade uh, moldable refractory materials out of uh, uh, clay-rich dirt and wood ash and cow manure and um, and crushed-up pottery called grog. Um, I have been using found objects to create uh, like heat radiators. Um, as you said, Pyrex lids are, are great little yeah, glass fire. doors, yep. so you could you could actually see the fire. Which, Which is, is one of the huge. great things about about that's the best part, right? It blows people's minds when they start to see fires burning sideways or backwards, and that's mm -hmm. really where I get it with the with the students, where they get that wow factor. Well, right. I mean, that's when that's when my propeller really starts spinning, you know. Oh yeah. And that's what got me attracted to all the stuff in the first place, is because I've always been a little bit of a pyro. Sure. You know, but once you see a fire doing something that intuitively is all kinds of wrong <laughs> and yet it's doing it you know you, you just go wow yeah um anyway I mean, so i, I also take apart physics yeah yeah totally i also take apart like old stove bodies and i use the old cast iron stove nice. tops you know with the removable plates 
So what's the main thing that people should be thinking about if they're trying out found or alternative or natural uh, alternatives to like purchased items, especially when it comes to enduring the type of heat that we're putting in here? Oh yeah. Well, the number one thing to, to, to think about is the, you know, like don't build it in your house first. <laughs> <laughs> Go outside. You'd you know? think that goes without saying, but yes. One would think, but it's pretty surprising how many people will make their first build a batch rocket. Really complicated thing. Because batch rockets are not easy to build compared to like a J-tube. Sure, sure. Um, they're real specific and you got to get it just right or it doesn't burn quite right. Mm. But anyway, you know, I've seen guys that will, guys and gals that will go and, and say, well, I really want a batch rocket because of all these things. And no, I've never built a stove before in my life. And uh, I'm going to throw these 10 experiments in too. <laughs> oh. And I'm going to build it in my house. Oh boy. Yeah, right? It's a recipe for disaster there. And well, surprisingly, nobody's died yet. And nobody's house has burned down yet that I know of. Let's not have anybody listening to this be the first one. Let's keep that statistic where it is. Right, exactly. So, so the recommendation is build one outside, uh, maybe under a roof so you can do it in the wintertime, but in a very safe place where you're not going to catch anything on fire. You're not going to um, fill your house with CO2 or anything like that. Yep. That sounds um, advice. Yeah, because there actually, there's some things in there that are not totally obvious to make them work well. And um, if you get it a little bit off, it won't work well. So you want to do all your learning curve on something you can tear down and rebuild. Sure. So I think that would be my major piece of advice. Otherwise, my advice is if you're building it outside, do everything you can think of. Screw up in every way you can. Um, try things that are crazy. Try things that don't work, that you know will work. But try it anyway. And then you know, you'll narrow the field of what you can do and you'll get a clear idea of how to do it. Then you can go ahead and build it inside. Yeah. Have you found that any of the materials that you've tried just straight up don't hold up and could be dangerous if they start to fail? Cause I know certain metals will melt at these temperatures. Oh yeah. Don't put any metals inside a heat riser. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, like unless you're building four inch rocket stove or less, that is not a batch rocket, uh, and you do not insulate it, and it's just something you want to throw in your truck, take to the beach, and um, use as like a little cooker. Yeah, that's yeah, fair enough. Those those little four Some inch, of those really little ones you can make out of like paint cans too. Yeah, totally. And those are cool. They are really fun. You know, and who doesn't want to do that? You know, but <laughs> <laughs> that's where I got started by putting like tin cans together. I built the tin can rocket stove. Yeah, yeah. It was in the old book. It was like a one-page thing. Tin can rocket stove, DIY. And that's a great craft if you've got like adolescent kids who want to do some fire experiments and learn some things about science. I mean, that's where I would really have fun. It's like teaching kids to do it on that scale. Obviously, oh, totally. Plenty of safety in mind, of course. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, that doesn't work. Um, if you're going to build like a homemade refractory material – Man, test that stuff thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. Because not every clay will do. Um, some are really low fire. Some are much higher fire. Some, you know, I've, I've now made some mistakes that way, um, and it hasn't caused any, you know, disasters yet. 
but um but but like clay that's heat risers <laughs> right totally that, well, that's a fact but i've had some clay heat risers you know perlite clay heat risers completely disintegrate at the bottom mm. uh and expose what is metal behind them you know because i'll use like an old piece of stovepipe and pack inside of that a perlite clay heat riser gotcha uh, and so, you know, I've had those things disintegrate because um, we didn't properly test the clay soil before we started building. Mm. Um, so that's important. Yep. So how do you go about testing that clay to make sure that it'll hold up? I'll make a little test clay ball of my mix. You know, take, um, you know, t- dig up your dirt, your candidate soil, make a test ball and toss it inside a campfire. And uh, really get that thing rip roaring, or or inside a wood stove, and just get it rip roaring. Just turn that wood stove up to max, you know. If you got a pot belly stove, make it glow red. <laughs> uh, I guess maybe I shouldn't encourage people to do that kind of thing, but get... <laughs> I think we've we've said all our disclaimers, right? Yeah, you know, right. First, yeah. Um, I, I'm often accused of encouraging people to do dangerous and stupid things. I mean, this is why I called you for this episode. <laughs> 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 nice okay right. so, so what are you looking for to see if it has failed or if it succeeded is it just going to disintegrate in that heat or is it is it like major cracking yeah well i mean the 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 surest the surest fire way of knowing it's not going to work is when you go back into the wood stove to dig it out and you can't find it yeah <laughs> fair enough <laughs> you know it will disintegrate completely that's the worst case scenario but i mean you can also see it you can pull it out um, and it will basically turn to glass and big glassy bubbles all over the mm. place. All right. That's not going to last very long, uh, as a heat riser typically, mm-hmm. um, that might work okay in other parts of the firebox, but if it's turning into slag, um, uh, basically it looks like, um, lava. Yeah. Yeah. Then, uh, that's not going to hold up. Is it just too much silica or probably, you know, the constituency of your clay is wrong. It's, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure exactly. Maybe the alumina content is too low, the silica content is too high. Yeah, yeah. I don't have a microscope. I'm not going to go that far into it. Yeah, I'm not either. I have just, those visual cues. That's good. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's just the wrong junk, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I've never really bothered to get super deep into the chemistry of all this stuff. Sure. Um, I, I never bought like a high-end smoke detector, one of those things, a, a Testo analyzer. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I sniff at the stovepipe, which your nose, your nose is actually more sensitive than those testo analyzers. It just won't give you a percentage of numbers. Sure, sure. So, you know, I'll, I sniff around at stovepipes and go, well, we can do better and, you know, and, and then yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, so, you know, so I guess my thing is I've always been Mr. Low Tech. Yeah, I mean, but through that, you, you can definitely come to the conclusions, the innovations of things that are actually going to work in practicality. Maybe you don't right. have all of the stats and the engineering to back it up, but you know pretty in and out, like, what's going to work in the context that you're trying it out from. Right, and let's face it, for most of us and our needs, we don't actually need to know that junk. What no, we I'm- need to know is what works and what doesn't work, and, and I can transfer what works in a small you know, letter form or email form to somebody on the other side of the globe and they can go out and just build it. Right. All right. So we just talked about a lot of the options for low tech solutions to building these types of things that will stand up to the heat. What are some of the conventional or I guess the materials that you could purchase 
that are more high performance to take out the guesswork if that's not where you want to start? Well, you could buy, buy a bagged fire clay, um, which is, you know, it's, it's a, a product that's used all the time in stoves and stuff like that. You could also buy um, uh, stuff called castable refractory, which is a kind of high temperature stove cement uh, or, or like a, a con kind of high temperature concrete almost. Okay. And that's um, for like casting your own pieces? Yeah, yeah, you can cast your own pieces. You can cast your own stove bodies and stuff like that. Um, Peter Vandenberg talks about a, that a lot in his um, Batch Rocket um, uh, website. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of different varieties of stove cement um, and castable refractory. And I, I'm not really the guy that can recommend one over another. Yeah, no, you're my low-tech guy. That's good. <laughs> right. Uh, there's also this is how some... I've always operated too, because a lot of these things were not easy to get or even available when I was in Guatemala. So I just learned the way you did. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So all right, let's pivot again a little bit and talk about uh, some of the upper configurations. Once we've lit that fire, once we've got it into a heat riser, let's talk about some of the options for using it because we we covered a little bit of you know the simplest one using the heat directly at the source for cooking. But how? let's get an idea of some of the other ways that that heat can be leveraged. Well, as you mentioned, there's cooking, but uh, you could also store it. You, oh, you, okay, so you can, you, can, you can shoot that heat into a metal box and radiate it immediately into the house. Okay, uh, so radiative heat for a space? Yep, radiative heat for a space, which is nice. Uh, and there's but, a number of ways of doing that. Let's break down a few of those options because the one that I was more familiar with was upturning an oil drum over the top of that and routing it through kind of an extended exhaust system to hopefully try and radiate as much of that heat out before it leaves the building. Yeah, that's the, the classic rocket stove slash um, barrel slash bench thing. Yep. Uh, and that works great because you have a balance of instant radiated heat with sort of a stored heat and a thermal mass. Yep. And if the thermal mass is made into a bench, then that stored heat can be enjoyed directly by sitting on it. Yep. Um, that's pretty sweet. But it's really heavy. It takes up a lot of space. Sure, sure. Um, Quite an installation, especially if you've got a smaller living room. Or right, exactly. It's a major installation. And quite, on, you know, quite honestly, it's not the most efficient thing for, for storing that heat. Well, let, let, let me... Let me not use the word efficiency on that. But what it is is it's, it's not always most convenient because the bench has a pipe inside it and the pipe's going to be hotter near the stove and cooler on the other end. Mm. So whoever's sitting closest to the stove is getting the most heat and whoever's sitting farthest away from the stove is getting the least heat. Makes sense. Right. How is it on maintenance? Because though I've used these systems, I've not lived with them for a long period of time and had to deal with cleaning out the exhaust. That sort of depends on how you put it together. Sure. Um, those pipe runs, you know, you have to be able to get in and pull the ash out. Yeah. So, so you need good clean outs. Well how placed. often is it sitting up though? Like how often did you have to clean out yours? Oh boy. Maybe once every year or two, a couple of years. Okay. So not too bad. It's not like, you know, every couple of months you got to open the thing up. No, no, no. You know, like every four or five fires, I'll clean out the firebox itself, like pull the ash out of the box. Yeah. Um, and then maybe every, every year I'll open it up and look inside. And maybe every two years, three years, I'll actually clean it. Gotcha. Um, you know, because ash will find the most inconvenient place to pile up. And, 
<laughs> and it'll pile up right there. And so if you don't have uh, a clean out opening into that, then you're going to have a hell of a time getting it out. Makes sense. Um, but if you're clever and, or, or, or you're just thinking about it, you, you know, you put clean outs in the right spots, it makes it so easy. And is that mostly like around elbows or places where it starts to? Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little more like fun. a wide spot in the flow will do it too. Okay. Um, the, usually that'll, they'll have a little bit of dropout just below the heat riser, uh, on the, on the bottom end of the barrel. You'll get a lot of pile up right there. Um, and then you'll get another pile probably if you run down the a bench and then make a 180 and come back the bench, um, down at your 180 area, you'll end up with some stuff piled up there. Um, and a thin skim all the way along often as well. And it's, it's mostly just a matter of running a large, like a duct cleaner or almost like a chimney sweep apparatus. I don't know what they're called, but to go in and kind of sweep out the interior of the exhaust. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you got, a, if you got electricity, um, running a shop vac down, that is nice oh, with, yeah, with an extendo go. hose on it. You, know, you just stick the hose in and that's not too bad then. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that bad. I've made a little thing like a long hoe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's usually a very small um, hoe head on a really long handle, you know, if you don't have the electricity. Yeah. But, yeah. but then you need to be in a kind of – the, the clean-out has to be set in such a way that, that, that you could actually use a long-handled hoe on it. Yeah. Because if it's near a wall, that's not happening. Sure. So you kind of got to think this one out before <laughs> ahead of time. <laughs> it requires some, some planning ahead of time. Right. And, you it's know, a major installation. Uh, yeah, they are a major installation. Um, so another way of going about that, one, something that I prefer now, actually, is something called a bell. Uh, and what a bell is, is it's just a large chamber um, that the heat enters the large chamber. Well, okay, so it's a large chamber that has its exhaust, its chimney exhaust at the very bottom. So that when heat enters this chamber, it will go into this sort of free gas movement. It's sort of a, a natural convective mode where the hotter stuff will tend to rise to the top and the cooler stuff in there will tend to go to the bottom and find the chimney. How large of a chamber are we talking in general here? Well, that's going to depend on the size of the firebox and how much um, heat you're producing. Um, because the, the chamber is sized, um, uh, it's, it's about the internal surface area of that thing and also what it's made out of. So like the barrel on, um, on a, uh, over your heat riser could be treated like a bell by raising the barrel up a ways. Right, right. Right? So that, I mean, but that, because it's steel, it's going to radiate heat faster. So you're going to have a smaller bell than if it was, say, made out of brick. Gotcha. Right, because brick will transfer heat slower and reach a saturation point. Uh, where there's so much heat uh, in the brick itself that it won't transfer heat out of the flow of the gases anymore properly or not very fast, you know? Yeah, yeah. And do you have a preference, one or the other, over that? I guess it's just how fast you want to heat a space and for how long? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's sort of a personal preference thing. You know, if you're in a big shop... You know, you don't really need a lot of thermal mass because you only need the place to be heated up while you're in it. Yeah. So if you're in it and you're, you know, you're working and then you're out of it, you don't need storage for overnight. 
Makes so a sense. big a big metal box is preferable, I think. There, um, like in every aspect of design, context is everything. Everything, yeah. You know, if you live in a home and you want to sleep warm all night, <laughs> you know, but you don't want to get up every couple hours to feed the fire, then you want you want a lot of thermal mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like ovens, you know, bread ovens. Um, the old traditional earthen bread ovens are very big, very heavy. The, they have lots and lots of thermal mass um, because the entire village would get together on a Saturday and everyone would cook, you know? And so one big fire the night before and another big fire in the morning and now you're cooking all day long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, some of the traditional bakeries that I saw in Morocco would still offer that as a as a service. You could bring your own homemade loaves and they'll bake them for you there for a couple of cents. It's cool yeah. that parts of communities are still intact like that. I mean, that's really cool. But okay, but take it, uh, like look at here in the States um, where an earthen oven is going to be in one guy's backyard and it's going to be used to throw pizza in an evening on Saturday only, you know, that guy doesn't time is just an installation that doesn't really get used. Exactly. So that guy doesn't need a lot of thermal mass. And because if you're just throwing pizza, you're going to keep the fire in the back of the oven anyway. What you really want is less thermal mass and maybe more insulation. Right. So it's all about not just, um, you know, well, it's, it, it, it's all about your pattern of use. Mm hmm. Um, so anyway, so back to the Ragamastos. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay, so we, we covered a little bit about the bells. Where does the exhaust go after it leaves that chamber? Like you said, the convection is going to push the colder gases down below and keep the hotter ones in that chamber to radiate out into the space. Right. So as they cool, they drop down and they get into your chimney. Now, they're, the, that, this is where you have to be careful about your sizing of your mass because if you soak up too much of the heat in the flow – then the gases may, you know, your exhaust may not rise out the chimney anymore. Yeah, you could have an issue of it backing up. Yeah, so you need, you need that chimney exhaust at the point of exhaust, you know, where it leaves the pipes and goes out into the environment, not to drop below, for safety's sake, about 200 degrees Fahrenheit or around 100 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? So, so that's sort of the safety point. Now, I, I built stoves that exhaust at much lower temperatures than that, but it's not a good idea. You know, I mean, on one hand, you get to keep more heat inside the building, but there are times and days where you won't be able to start the stove at all if you do that. You'll have to find a way to prime it somehow. Even if you prime it, it'll stall. It'll really? stall. Yeah, well, okay, so here's a, a condition, right? So you are in a cob house, right? Great thermal mass, but it goes cold. You know, let's say it's gone cold and you have a warm day outside, but the cob is cold inside the house yeah yeah and you want to get that fire started to kind of warm up the house and for some silly reason you're inside <laughs> uh, on a beautiful warm day in a cold house you're not going to start that fire no it's going to be reverse exhausting the whole time it's going to reverse run in your face and yeah. and even if you do have a primer box and you get the chimney hot temporarily it's not going to last mm. um so that's a disadvantage. Also, like uh, here on my stove at home, uh, in, in the little hut that I live in, the, um, it's called a huckleberry. It's a cute little hut. It is a cute little hut. Um, 
so what I've got an issue in there in that my exhaust temperature is so low on that stove that the chimney is cold to the touch always. Right. Yeah. Um, and if it rains like big rainy nights, even though it's cold, it's warmer inside the hut than the outside. So you're getting positive pressure effects of a warmer space. Uh huh. If rain actively runs down my chimney pipe on the outside, it'll cool the exhaust off to the point where it'll start backfiring on the inside of the building. Right. Yeah. So yeah, maybe not the cleverest thing that I decided, Hey, let's keep more heat inside the building. Shall we? <clears throat> didn't doesn't always work. Sure. You don't really get to, to test it out until those circumstances arise. Sometimes exactly. it's hard to predict. Yeah. I thought it'd be okay. Cause most of the time it runs great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Except for that coldest night of the year when it's also raining, <laughs> which is sort of reverse of what you think. But you know, yeah. again, like if it, because I live in it now all the time, that happens less and less and less because I keep the space warm. I keep the chimney warm, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about some of the other things that you can do with that heat. Other ways of maybe reclaiming exhaust or using it to heat water or some other element. Yeah. Again. Yeah. You could use it to heat water. I like putting a hot water tank inside of a bell chamber. Okay. Uh, that works really well. Um, I try not to teach people how to build um, hot water systems because water is sort of a, a steam explosion problem. Right. If you don't have a pressure release valve somewhere on that, you're, yeah, if things go wrong, you've built a bomb. <laughs> yeah. If things go wrong, you've built a bomb. And, and there is actually a great system designed by Tim Barker. Um, uh, he, he did it at Tagari Farms. You might've seen this already. It's a double boiler system. I haven't seen this one. This is so cool. So what you do is you heat up, you directly heat an open pot, an open tank of water. And inside that, you put a pressurized coil, so a copper coil. So because you're directly heating up an open, open container, the open container can just steam away. No yeah. pressure can build up. Okay, well, well, it'll never get hotter than boiling point. Exactly. It'll never get hotter than the boiling point of whatever altitude you're at. Um, 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level. Sure. Um, but because pressurized water has a higher boiling temperature, the coil that's inside of that open tank, uh, cannot, cannot boil. Yep. So then what you do is you use the, um, the big tank that you're heating directly. That's your sort of a heat storage zone. And then the copper coil running through that is taking heat from that and taking that to your shower or whatever your hot water use is. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a clever application. Built-in safety system. You don't even need to pressure anything. You don't need a pressure relief valve or any of that stuff because you could totally just boil out the big tank. And as long as the coil doesn't touch the sides, you know, I, I suspend it from wire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as long as the coil doesn't touch the sides, it can't blow up. Oh, I'm going to have to check that out. That's really cool. Yeah. Have you ever played around with heating other elements like oil that do have a much higher uh, boiling temp kind of for safety reasons, but can also store a lot of that heat that way? I have not done that. That's a really interesting thing. I've always uh, kind of thought about heating oil directly then to heat water somehow. Yeah, by running water through it, like, a, like through a pipe or something. Exactly. 
That's a little dangerous though, because some oil you can get to like 400 degrees. Oh, definitely dangerous, yeah. <laughs> and then you, you go running water through a pipe that's in 400 degree Fahrenheit oil, you know. Well, this is where you got to put in those safety systems. Right, but you might be able to run a steam engine off of something exactly. like that. Exactly. <laughs> and get some kind of little turbine going. You bet. Yeah, I mean, that's a cool idea. I, I haven't done that. I'd, I'd like to someday. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe make a little steam engine off of that or right. something, Sterling Cycle engine that runs off of that. It'd be fun to play with. Right? Have you ever worked on trying to reclaim heat from a cook stove? Like putting something in the exhaust? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. I've done like a, had a cook stove that had multiple, um, multiple cooking areas. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's, there's the spot right over the heat riser. That's really hot. Yeah, yeah. But just downstream a couple steps, it's also still really hot. Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, I'll have like a, a, a fast boil heat area, a slow boil heat area, a simmer area, and then a warmer. Yeah. And then somewhere in between the slow boil and the warmer, I'll put a little hot water heater, like the little coil hot water heater that, we're ta- that we just talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a great thing right there. Um, uh, you know, you can drop bricks in something like that and wrap a brick, that brick in a towel and take it to bed with you. Yeah. Almost like a, a hot water bottle heater. Yeah. Kind of like a hot water bottle, bottle etc. But, uh, you don't stand the risk of accidentally puncturing it and ending up with a wet bed. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> One of the advantages, but then of course you're sleeping with a brick. So <laughs> that's true. Yeah. You sleep with a brick. <laughs> there's give and take on that one i always kind of thought about putting some kind of heat exchanger in it that would route into a sauna and having that at a fairly constant heat whenever you're running another element and then you know go in for a sauna after a meal or something that sounds great um the amount of heat you need in a sauna though depends on the design of the sauna and how you're heating it if that's like in an open coil and it's heating the air directly through convection or if you're running it through a bank and like keeping a uh, low level constant heat for a long time because depending on i mean i've uh, like the the temascal ceremonies in guatemala or mexico kind of run a little bit differently and oh. they last a little longer so you can't have it as nearly high of a heat but okay. it was one of the things that i was designing and building for clients a lot while i was out there because so many people had the vacation homes and the climate was really nice, so they'd like have a pool, and then they'd build these saunas, and some of them would even use them for ceremonies and stuff. Just got me thinking about a lot of different ways of uh, using that heat in different ways. Yeah, no, I'd, li- I'd like to see that. Oh, excuse me. I'd like to see that, sort of any designs that you've come up with. That, that... Oh, man, I was going to start designing one at our place before I left, but I didn't get a chance to do that before I've uh, made the move now. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, well, okay. I'll talk to you about that later. Um, <laughs> sure, sure. I was say, well, where are you moving to? But um, uh, later, that's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, people who've been listening here probably already know I'm moving to Spain actually one week from today. So. Oh, awesome. That's going to be a cool new chapter. I'll keep you posted. I mean, I, I listen to your stuff all the time, but sometimes I don't get it. Sometimes well, especially lately, I've been publishing a lot of them out of sequence because I recorded a ton in Guatemala before I came out and I wanted to, you know, not be working too much or throw off my schedule out as visiting family. So a lot of them are, you know, a handful of weeks old or like bundled into topics now. Huh. 
Okay, and this cool. one's this one's going to be the same. This is going to come out after I've already moved to Spain. So. <laughs> right, right. All right. Well, I'll have to check that out. I'll check that out. All right. So here, let's focus now on how these things can be leveraged in the home. Because, you know, as you mentioned, there are certain areas that are banning wood stoves or wood combustion in homes or within urban areas entirely. What is your experience on making these safe enough and certainly clean enough that they don't pose a risk inside of a home? Well, I mean... You know, just build it well. <laughs> build it well. Seal up all the cracks. Yeah, seal up all the cracks. Build it well. Operate it carefully, and um, and it's great. And you, quite often, you can't even tell that there's a fire going. You know, if you go out and stand out and you look at the chimney, you can't see smoke coming out of it. <laughs> and you know, and if you're careful and you sort of move your head around, you can see heat waves coming out of it sometimes. Yeah. You know, so. You you know, it, somebody who doesn't know what the heck they're looking at, if they see a chimney pipe with heat waves coming out of it and not smoke, they're going to go, oh, well, that's a propane device. Mm. Propane devices are legal. Sure. Um, if I understand you correctly, you're advocating for subversively installing these in cities. <laughs> oh, I would never advocate for anything subversive. <laughs> of course I am. But no, you know, actually what I advocate, you know, I... You know, it's kind of hard to say that it's a stupid law, but... Like everything kinda, is probably based in good intentions, right? But yeah, these are really on the fringe and most people don't know of this as an option for wood combustion. It's probably not factored into the lawmaking. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, there's a lot of professional heat people like HVAC installers and stuff like that that are saying that our claims are actually lies. Hmm. You know, and they're saying, no, it's a lie. You can't do that with wood. And, you know, okay, fine. But uh, yes, I can. <laughs> sure. And here's the proof. Come see. Here's my stove. Yeah, you yeah. Know? But, um, you know, um, I think that what we really need is to have some people, a lot of people, who want these stoves to go to their local regulatory body and say, check it out. I've got this. Here's some information. Here's some documentation. You know, here's a website or two. Here's the forums. You know, I want to build this thing. How can we get this put in to our local, you know, um, building codes? Yeah. Right. Well, the thing that I like and that I've learned a lot from different forums and, um, and different discussions on this is when you break down the comparison of combustion of different materials, there's a lot of things that aren't factored into just the amount of BTUs put out from a system, right? So if you're using electricity or if you're using propane, what they're not considering in those calculations is all of the inefficiencies and pollution to get those things to the source of use. Yeah, that's correct. Gathering firewood or sustainably harvesting from a forest is it has none of those embodied carbon or pollution metrics that just get it to your house. That's right. And, and in I fact, it could actually be a carbon negative system if you're careful. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if done correctly. And I think until we start looking at the calculations from the entire aspect of how these things are used, sourced, uh, acquired to begin with. I mean, let's talk about all of the, uh, the losses in the electrical grid and how much is lost just transferring it through wires to say nothing about like, you know, whether it's clean or what source is generating that electricity, which most of the time is still not re renewables, even if that's your, you know, your best case scenario. Yeah, I mean, exactly. 
Totally. I don't think I could put it any better than that. You know, you have to see the entire life cycle of, of the fuel, not just where it's point of use. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I mean, it goes with so many things that we talk about on this show. I mean, you're very well aware of calculating those types of things when you're looking at natural building materials, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Though you may be um, doing a lot more work and processing to get them to be used as building materials um, on site. They also didn't have to be mined from somewhere a long way away, transported all the way there, or like certainly in the case of uh, cement and stuff, you know, huge amounts of industrial processes and tons of fossil fuel burned just to transform the material. Absolutely. I mean, although to be honest with natural building, I have been shocked at myself at the kinds of compromises I have to make in order to build a natural building. Mm. I mean, you know, tarps for mixing, you know how much plastic junk has come out of this place because tarps get shredded? Yeah, yeah. You know, like... It's tough, it's, it's an imperfect system, you know? They all are. They all exactly. are. Exactly. And, you know, so you have to make your compromises where you find them. But yeah. um, back to natural building, I mean, back to uh, rocket mass heaters, you know, you really can create a negative carbon system with a sustainable woodlot. You know, if you're doing coppicing or something like that, you could grow more wood mass than you use. How much space would you, I mean, these are all going to be very rough estimates, very um, dependent on context and, and variation, but how much, like, let's say for your amount of use, which is quite minimal, I would imagine, for the smaller spaces that you're living in and such, how much space would you need to maybe grow all of that coppice to provide for a year's consumption? Oh, my goodness. For my own personal use? Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't probably need more than, like, an acre of willow, mm. you know, or less for my own personal use. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I've got a bunch of buildings around here. I've got my building and I've got, you know, the mud hut. There's two. I, well, actually, they're not all in use right now. But yeah, I've got well, 10 well, cabins. Maybe let's break it down to an easier to crunch calculation. How much wood do you think you go through for your individual house in a season? My little mud hut? Oh, my goodness. I go through maybe less than an eighth of a cord. Yeah. So it's really negligible. Oh, it's tiny. It's a tiny amount. Yeah. You know, I, I really can just go out in the forest and break off a bunch of deadfall, you know, just break dead branches off and bring in a bundle of wood that's, you know, uh, maybe say 12 to 18 inches in diameter by, you know, about the same long, that bundle will last me three days. Yeah. You know, and heat my space. Yeah. You know, that's like the size of two logs. Yeah. You know, that keeps it in perspective. And I mean, it goes with like this larger theme of learning to depend on the resources in our own immediate areas for our own needs and kind of living within those means, you know? So this is a very appropriate technology within the context that you live. You're close to a forest. Um, And it would be all the more important to burn things that much more efficiently if you were in a place that had much scarcer resources for wood or higher competition for it within an area. True. Yeah. But I mean, I think that you could actually do this in cities as well. I mean, there's depending on the city, of course, there's a lot of wood resource in a city that is currently pretty much just thrown away. Oh, yeah. To say nothing of uh, construction waste just to begin with. Yeah, right. Construction waste, municipal trimmings, um, you name it, you know, and and you can make biomass pellets out of leaf drop. Sure. 
um, if you needed to and burn that in a rocket stove. Have you tried that out? I have not done the biomass thing, but I've seen other people who've done it really effectively. I would imagine it would work. I just haven't had the chance to try it. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, there's, I mean, there's some people who figured out how to do pellet stoves really well, you know, to burn pellets in rocket heaters. Yeah, yeah. There's also been some pretty serious problems with that. Um, really? Yeah, there's one guy. Um, let's see, what's the name of his YouTube channel? What I really like about him is he's super honest. Okay. Um, uh, uh, Bigelow Brook Farms. Uh, he, he's, uh, I forgot exactly where, but he's in a Northern climate where things get really cold. So he built himself a uh, hydroponic system or an aquaponic system. Yeah. He's got fish in his system and he's got, you know, floating plants and all that stuff. But to keep it all warm, he built this rocket mass heater that he feeds pellets into. Well, and it works pretty well. Um, but one day he accidentally, he didn't realize that a bag of pellets that he poured in was wet. It had a little moisture in it. Are you there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, and so he pours it into his hopper and walks away. Pours it, you know, lights it and walks away. And so the hopper stopped descending. It stopped feeding. So now it started smoldering up the hopper instead. Mm. And it burned the entire bag of pellets backwards and smoked out the whole place. Oh, man killed a bunch of fish, killed all his plants, like wiped that place out. Yikes. Yeah, this is like the second or third horror story I've heard about using rocket stoves to heat greenhouses. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, I'm not an advocate for using a rocket stove to heat greenhouses, by the way. I mean, you, it can be done, but, you know, like, chickens are better. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Or like a really big compost pile. Yeah, yeah, right, compost piles and all that stuff. Anyway. Fewer things to go wrong, yeah. Right. So I haven't experimented with pellets. I've seen people do or, or, or other biomass. I don't need to. Um, but I've seen other people do it to good effect. Yeah. It seems like it's one of those areas that needs some more work but shows some potential. Right. And I know a guy who's working on um, burning plastics. Ah. Uh, which could be really useful in places where you have an overburden of plastic and no garbage pickup. Yeah. So he's trying to figure out how to burn plastics efficiently without creating PCBs and, um, you know, other yeah, things. Noxious, yeah, contaminants. Noxious contaminants. Yep. And uh, he's getting close, I think. Okay. Well, that's promising. I'm going to try and keep an eye on that. Where, in your opinion, do you still see a lot of room for improvement in these types of stoves uh, and in efficient home heating and cooking in general? Ooh, room for improvement. Well... I think the technology itself is pretty mature. Um, the biggest room for improvement in this is, is communication, is our ability to communicate to the world at large um, that this thing works, uh, why it works, that it's, um, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like Getting yeah, out to the larger audience. always the hardest part. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I still see come to, you know, various forums here and there and say, look at this cool metal rocket stove I built. I see a lot of those too. Yeah. I see a lot of them. And, you know, you go, hey, man, that's a really cool thing. And I love seeing the fire in your little video, but that thing's not going to last. You know, and the comeback on that is, oh, well, you're just a hater. You know, it's like, well, no, I love your thing. It looks really cool, but you might want to line the rocket stove interior bits out of refractory material 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Just for the longevity. Yeah, but I mean, quite often those guys don't come back with a follow-up YouTube video that says, oh, oh wow, you know, half a, half a winter goes by and my heat riser's gone. Let's try something else. Sure, sure. You know, um, so I think the improvements in this are all, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm wrong. I'm sure there's some improvements that could be made somewhere in the physical part of this. But the biggest improvements I see that need to be made is in that sort of social sphere, social communication sphere. You Do know? you see much potential for production of like a self-contained unit that you could either have like a, a subcontractor install or a, an owner builder or some DIY person just kind of buy the unit and pretty simply oh, yeah. having to understand the guts or the interior workings just install for themselves. Oh yeah. There's a group in uh, yeah, I think they're Eastern European. I forgot exactly what country, but it's Gamera G A M E R A mm -hmm. after the old flying turtle um, monsters movies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right? Gamera. Gamera. Anyway, um, uh, it's a standalone kit. Uh, I don't think it's even a kit. You just buy the stove and set it up and then you could just plug it into your, to your use like thermal mass or hot water or whatever. Uh, it's, yeah, that's slick. I got to check that out. It's really slick. Yeah. It's a really cute little thing. It, it, it just comes out of the box and you stand it up. The interior is refractory lined. Mm -hmm. Um, otherwise it's a metal box or a metal kind of cylinder on legs. Gotcha. You know, and they've done a little That's bit of promising. detailing to it. Yeah. They've done some detailing to it. So it's not unattractive. Um, it's pretty sweet. Little essential for that outreach we're talking about. Right. Uh, and there was another group, um, called, uh, dragon stoves. You could find them online. I think they might have sold the business though at this point. Hmm. Uh, they had a cool product, but they were having trouble with, um, yeah, I don't remember exactly why, what the glitch in the, their matrix was, but, um, they came to the forums, actually asked a bunch of questions, built this cool little stove kit that they could send in boxes. Uh, they talked to Peter Vandenberg. It was one of the Peter Vandenberg's designs. Okay. Um, it has, uh, it has a Peter channel built in and some other things. Um, it's not a bad little stove. There's some, some things that I would say need improving, but they sent me a kit, uh, as a thank you gift. Um, it was cool. Nice. So that's, uh, yeah. So there's, uh, there's at least two that I know of. Uh, and I know that there's some other people working on sort of a shippable core idea. Yeah. Yeah. The um, trickiest part to build. Yeah, right. The hardest part to build. Something that they could ship in simple pieces. They could just be stacked, installed, and then a barrel thrown on it with, you yeah, know, yeah. build your own bench kind of idea. Mm -hmm. I think right now the Gamera one is the most mature. Okay. Well, I'll do my best to find links to all of this and put this in the resources for the episode. Um, and before we wrap up, do you have any advice for DIY folks, uh, listeners to this, who want to get started building their first ones and start playing around with the potential of this? Well, yeah, I mean, at risk of, at risk of repeating myself, um, you know, find a safe place out in your yard or, or in a barn with good ventilation and get started. Yeah. You know, just get out there and do it, man. There's no impediment to just doing it. You and know? from my own experience, like, Worst case scenario, it's a lot of fun playing with fire. I mean, maybe that's not the worst case scenario, but assuming you're being safe, 
it's just a lot of fun to play around with Absolutely. how to manipulate these uh, really base kind of physics um, of, of how heat thermodynamics and stuff work Absolutely. with really minimal materials. Like this is something you could just, uh, I think in our courses, we were throwing these up with a bit of mud and some clay bricks and cheap clay bricks in probably a matter of 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's about right. I mean, really what we have at a rocket stove is it's a Fox stove above ground. Yeah. Right. So go back to the history of it. Look at Fox stoves, build one, look at, um, you know, uh, look at the old tin can stove, build a couple, you know, as a test, you can just use metal stovepipe and cobble, fabric cobble some garbage together and get a cool stove that will not last. Yeah. But it's fun, right? And you can you can iterate changes really quickly with something like that. Exactly. That's where you get to really experiment around and try new stuff. Absolutely. Try new stuff. Yeah. And, and of course, go and look at the things that other people have done on the forums and, and all of that stuff. But don't be afraid to try things that other people think are dumb. Mm. You know, like I can only screw up so many ways. I can only think of so many ways to screw up. Yeah. And I've done my best learning by screwing up. So, sure. you know, everybody <laughs> find a way to screw up in a way that nobody else has figured out how to do. Because that's going to teach you something about building a better stove next time. Yeah. For right. Sure. And of course, make it safe for yourself, your family, your neighbors. Do your best to be safe. But don't be afraid of experimenting. And doing, you know, quote unquote, dumb things. Yeah. You know, because that's how we all got started. We were told this wasn't possible. We were told we were doing stupid things. Oh, those hippies over there, they're going to kill themselves. Well, you know, not yet. <laughs> and we did some great things. That's not really the best gotcha I've heard. <laughs> we haven't killed ourselves yet, but... <laughs> I'm totally in this camp, so I'm in favor of it. Right? You know, the point being is that we've created something really cool that people said that couldn't be done. Um, and and we did it because we were willing to do dumb things. Yeah. So, quote, unquote. I'm doing air quotes here. You can't see it. I know that's obnoxious, but, <laughs> you know, dumb things. Yeah. Um, and thinking outside of the box. Yeah. You know, and and that's one of the great things about rocket stoves is that you have this combustion unit that is also um, separate from the use of the heat. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, once you build a combustion unit that you really like, now you can play downstream with different ways of using the heat. Oh yeah. The implications are almost limitless once you get, you know, the basics down. Absolutely. And oh, one of the things that we dumb ideas we were talking about earlier, like hooking up a sauna to it, like figure right. out if it works. Yeah, totally. Well, as a general rule, I mean, here's something that, that, that hasn't gotten a lot of time in experimentation with, you know, when you have it, when you build a stove to do more than one thing at a time, they tend not to do any one of them well. Sure. But that isn't necessary. That doesn't have to be true. Um, maybe with things like bypasses, you know, which is basically a valve in the down in the stream, so that you can flip it one way, and the airflow, the the gas flow goes one direction into, say, a hot water heater. 
Yep. And then you flip it the other way, and then the gas flow can maybe go into a heat storage device for your house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then on that, you can flip it another way, and it goes into your sauna. You know, also, there's different needs and different uses of heat. Like cooking tends to want a higher temperature, and say heating your house tends to want to have a lower temperature, and maybe you can take uses off of that. You know, there's sure. a, a lot of room for innovation in how to use the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, figure out what you can find out from your home experiments and post them on the forums. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This whole thing is open source right now. Yeah. Give back. Give back. That's right. It is, a, it is a really thriving community, and it's where I've gotten so much of my knowledge and inspiration from. So, yeah, Donkey, I want to really thank you for making that such a great resource and inviting everybody to, co- like, to share and contribute on that. And I really look forward to keeping up with, with what's uh, coming out of this and, and the innovations and the community that it continues to build. So, uh, yeah, I want to thank you for that resource. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity to talk. Well, it's always good to catch up with you. Hopefully we can do so again uh, sometime soon. All right. Awesome. All right. Take care, buddy. You bet. Abyssinia. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.